0: So as I mentioned right at the uh, kind of onset of announcements, uh, we're split this morning, right? Half of our church is out at New Life Ranch at all church retreat, and uh, the rest of us, the good ones, are here. And so, uh, uh, but it's an amazing thing, right? Because we're we're both in worship together right now. Where they're actually uh, wrapping up their little church church service by the lake, which is really cool, and, and here we are. And and I thought long and hard I was going to continue on in, in Ephesians. Remember, we, we started our wrap-up last week, and we have two weeks. We did three lessons learned, and then we have three more. But I decided that I was going to wait um, and do those next week because I want us to be on the same page as a community. And I think what we talked about a lot this weekend is important and has a high value here as well, and I don't want us to miss it. So we're going we're gonna to wrap up our final sermon in the Ephesians series next week, and we're going to talk about the last three lessons that we've learned. So we went over three last week, go over three next week. But right now, I want to visit a place that we've been this weekend that I think is really important. And Our theme for the weekend at the retreat was Breathe Deep, how to cultivate a, re, a, a life that has peace with God, right? And I think the reason that Brandon and I, when we were kind of coming up with this theme and talking it through, like we landed on this idea of, of, of cultivating a life of peace is because it's the one thing that both he and I chase the most and we just don't have or can't get a grasp on. Like, Peace seems like it's always one step ahead of us. It's that, that part of our soul that we long for, whether it's peace in our relationships with other people or in our own financial world or in our own families or in relationships or just in the restlessness of my heart or in my own worry or whatever it is. Like Peace is not something that I would use to describe my life. Um, I long for it, and there are times when I feel like it's there, but for the most part, if you were to say, hey, Trev, how would you describe your life? I would not use peaceful as one of those words. But scripture actually tells us and calls us to this idea of a life of peace, like peace in, in relationship with creation peace in relationship with each other, peace in our mind, in our heart, and with God. And so we've been exploring those all weekend. We spent the first evening talking about how to have peace in broken relationships, what it means to forgive and let go. And we identified some of those pieces. And then in the mornings we've been taught, we talked about peace in our heart and peace in our mind, and then peace with God. They're kind of exploring th- this morning. And we used Philippians 4 as that backdrop. And I don't know if any of you here were with us when we studied the book of Philippians. I mean, it was, it was a literal full decade ago. So, so in 2013, we taught through that book right at the sort of fledgling stages of, of who we were as a church and right after we had planted. And we, we kind of look at this book and we walked through it like we had done with Ephesians. But it was a long time ago. So I'm guessing that most of you may not remember that or if you were a part of you were here. Those specific things may not kind of jump into your mind. But Philippians is a really important letter. It's an important letter because it's written with a different heart than Paul wrote the book of Ephesians. Paul wrote to the Philippians as a thank you letter for a gift that they had given him. And he wrote to them because he had this special affinity, this deep, real deep love for the church in Philippi. And it's hard to explain why outside of the fact that he just really loved those people. And so what we see in Philippians is sort of Paul giving his best to a church and a group of people that he just adored. And that's kind of the way to look at it. And as a letter, it's really powerful because he gets really specific and he gets really honest, but he's deeply caring in the process. In fact, in chapter 4, he actually calls out a broken relationship. There's two people that are having these two amazing women that Paul says are believers and their names are written in the book of life, but they're in a disagreement. And their names are Iodia and Sintich. And he calls them out in chapter 4 and he says, I implore, I implore you with a heartbeat of God to reconcile with one another. You are amazing women. Church, help these women find peace in their relationship. And it's this sort of safety that he uses this letter for. He doesn't ridicule them. He doesn't tell them they're wrong. He just basically pleads with them in the safety of this letter because the community there is just this picture unity. And it's a really, really amazing letter. So I say all that to say, if you get the chance this week, I encourage you to read chapter four in its sort of entirety. It's really powerful. But we're going to be looking at two verses this morning as we talk about this idea of the great exchange that we're called to, um, that we're called to exchange worry and anxiety for the peace of God. How do we do that, right? It's one of those things that sounds great on paper, but how do we Actually, do it. And so, we're going to be exploring um, Philippians 4 6 through 7 this morning as we kind of talk about that great exchange. So, if you've got a Bible and you want to flip over there, you're, you're welcome to. And I'm going to pray for us, and then I'm going to give you a little bit of background on Philippians and the church there. And then we're just going to look at these two verses. Pretty simple, nothing complicated, but definitely something that I think the majority of us in here, including myself, um, we just don't really know how to get, right? And so we're going we're gonna to see if we can't find an answer this morning in Scripture. So let's take a moment and let's just pray. Lord, it is a great privilege to gather here together as a family. Um, these letters, the Philippians, the, the Ephesians, these churches in these towns were just a gathering of people. That's it. They didn't have space. Um, in fact, the church in Philippi was formed on the side of a riverbank. Um, they just were people. And they just gather together, and, and these letters were written to encourage and convict and build up the church. Um, the church didn't look a lot like it looks today. Um, and that's both a, a good thing and a bad thing. But it was made up of the same thing, which is the heartbeats of people, the assembly of God, the ecclesia. And so this morning, Lord, we are the, very much the picture of the church that Paul writes to in Philippians. We're just a gathered group of people. Haven't figured it out. We're pretty new in our faith, relatively speaking. We're trying to navigate the complex worries and anxieties of life and the promises of God all at the same time. That's what was happening in Philippi. They heard the things of God, and they had a hard time reconciling them in their life. In other words, a hard time putting them into practice. That's me. As we sit here this morning, Lord, I pray that you would just echo these truths from Scripture into our heart, that we might make this great exchange to push worry and anxiety out and to let the peace of God in. Um, Lord, you are our king, and we love you, We thank you for Jesus. Take a moment as you sit here this morning and just just ask the Lord to teach you. Um, Kind of off the beaten path a little bit, not really where we've been over the past year in terms of just what we've been teaching through. But just ask the Lord just to to isolate what he's doing this morning and just, just teach your heart a little bit. Just say, God, teach me. Take a moment, as we do each week, and pray for someone around you. Pray for the folks beside you. Um, If you want to take a minute and pray for the folks that are traveling home here and on their way back from the retreat, just pray for somebody else. Like, Be in the habit of praying for other people. Recognize that this community is not just about you. Be interested in the spiritual lives of the people around you, and, and, and take a moment and pray for somebody else this morning. Lord, we love you and we thank you deeply for Jesus. And we ask these things in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. So chapter four, pretty awesome chapter. Philippians is a fantastic book. They're all great, but Philippians is really great. And um, we're going to look at two verses this morning. And we're kind of picking up right in the middle of this this sort of context. And so let me give you a quick little word about the church there and then uh, we'll jump into it. So as I mentioned, um, Philippians was a young church. Uh, It was actually all brand new believers. There weren't any believers there before Paul arrived on the second missionary journey. Um, None. And it's a really interesting city because um, Philippi was a Roman colony. Um, It was fully embraced by the Romans, which means that it was made up of Roman citizens. So because it was a Roman colony, it wasn't just a town that was overtaken by the Romans. They actually were granted Roman citizenship. And so they dressed like Romans, they acted like Romans, um, they lived like Romans, they worshipped like Romans. And it was on this major thoroughfare that ran across the entire Balkan Peninsula called the Via Ignatia, or the Ignatian Way, if you remember way back in your history classes. It was this thoroughfare that crossed the entire Balkan Peninsula, ran into the Adriatic Sea, and then continued on into Rome. It was the single greatest trade route um, of, of all time, perhaps. And that city sat right on it. So it was a very important city. It was a very cosmopolitan city, if you, would, if you could be cosmopolitan in those, those days. And it was very Roman. Um, and there weren't any believers there, not a single one. And you remember Paul's MO when he would go on these missionary journeys? He would arrive in a city or a town, and the first thing he would do was go where? He'd go to the temple. And he'd go to the temple and just begin to teach the Jews. Well, Paul arrives in Philippi, and there is no temple. There's no temple because there's really even no Jews out there in Philippi. But he hears a rumor that there's a gathered group of Jews down by the river on the Sabbath. And so he decides that that's where he's going to go. So Acts tells us this in chapter 16. He kind of gives a whole picture of the story of the church of Philippians. But it tells us that Paul goes down to the river and instead of finding a group of Jewish people there that were kind of doing worship and doing the things on the Sabbath they should be doing, he finds a group of women. And they're worshipers of God. And that, that term is in quotes because what that means is that they weren't technically Jewish. They were Gentiles that believed and worshipped the Jewish God. So they hadn't fully been able to be converted to Jewish people But they were Gentiles that believed in the one true God. And they were gathered there on the side of the river, led by this woman named Lydia, and they were having a prayer meeting on the Sabbath. And so Paul, instead of finding the Jews there, he finds a group of God worshipers, worshipers of God, led by a woman named Lydia, who was a very prominent businesswoman. She was actually a dealer in purple cloth, which for a woman in those days was a huge deal. And this gathering of, of essentially all women is the beginning movement of the church in Philippi. So the the role of these women had a huge impact on the gospel because they become the birthplace of the church in Philippi. So Paul meets with them and he gathers with them and then they begin to meet in Lydia's home. Lydia opens up her home. And Paul begins to preach the gospel. And these worshipers of God who were, who were Gentiles that were worshiping the Jewish God put their faith in Jesus Christ and they become the first believers in Philippi. And the church in Philippi that started a little prayer meeting down by the river moves into Lydia's house. And that kind of movement of the gospels where the church in Philippi began. And Paul loved them. I mean, loved them. And there were... It was an interesting setting because the Philippians were, while it was a cosmopolitan city, it was a very difficult city to live in. There was a lot of historical evidence that there was a pretty significant famine going on at the time as a result of a civil war where the Romans had come through and there wasn't a lot of things to eat. And the Romans were actively engaging in the persecution of any believers. So when these new Christians had put their faith in Christ, they became active enemies of the Roman military. And so being a believer in first century Philippi was really, really hard. You had no Christian family, no Christian relatives, no other Christian community outside of the one, two, three, or four people that had just given their life to Christ in the small growing church. You had militant um, oppressors that wanted you dead, and there was famine happening, which means there were people starving. And this is what it meant to be part of the church in Philippi. And so Paul receives a gift while he's in prison in Rome from the Philippians. We don't really know what it is, but we know that in Philippians 4, he says, he's writing this letter to thank, you for the, thank him for the gift um, that they've given him, and he uses that time to then encourage the church. So Paul writes the letter to the Philippians the exact same time he writes the letter to the Ephesians. He's under house arrest in Rome, waiting to go stand trial before Emperor Nero, right, who is the most brutal of all the Roman empires, and he writes this letter of encouragement and love back to the Philippians, the same way that he pins his letter of instruction to the Ephesians that we have worked through for the past year. So it's an affinity letter. It's a letter of deep love and care. And so when he talks about these things, he's not just saying, church, do this and don't do that. He's saying, you who I love so deeply, I want you to know Christ. And so I want to address some things that are very personal. And that's why he addresses Eodia and teach the way he does. It's why he addresses this letter with this deep personal flair. But this is what he says in verse chapter 4, verse 6 and 7. And I think it's really personal. I'll tell you why in a minute. He says this. He says, do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So we actually pick up right in the middle of this bigger section where Paul's calling the believers there to rejoice, right? To find joy in the Lord, to reconcile their relationships. Three verses earlier, he addresses these women. and He says, listen, I plead with you to find a way to reconcile your hearts. And then he says, rejoice, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. In other words, the way you treat people matters. And then he goes, don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, through prayer and petition and with thanksgiving, present your request to God, the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And it's a really powerful picture because I believe it's super personal. Because when we begin to talk about worry and anxiety, we begin to talk about things that are incredibly personal. And the reason I say that is because these aren't things we talk about out loud. Because worry and anxiety are things that take place in our heart and our mind, we tend to keep them there. They're not things we talk a lot about out loud. We certainly don't share them with the wider world. We may let a few individuals in our smaller circles in, but we don't let the world in. And so the battle that takes place with anxiety and worry in us takes place on a personal level. It's something that most of us wrestle with, not out loud. And so when we begin to deal with the issues that anxiety and worry bring about, we're dealing with things that are very personal because we also know that these are things that God calls us not to do. Yet these things are happening in our life, and we're ashamed by that a lot, and so we don't speak about it. Paul knows this. He actually knows this, and he addresses those things in such a way. Now, a lot of us will take the idea of shame or the idea of worry and anxiety and we'll kind of sweep them under the rug a little bit and be like, well, they're not really that big a deal. But I will tell you this, I actually think they are, and I'm gonna show you why this morning. And why, as believers, we can't sweep them under the rug, and why we have to identify them and root them out of our life, or we will never have peace with God. And I truly mean never. Scripture is incredibly clear about it. So let's talk about it for a moment. The first thing that Paul says, right, is do not be anxious about anything. It's fascinating. That word anxious or anxiety in the Greek is actually two words. It's two words crammed together. It's the word marimneo. And that word actually means divided mind. And it's used in the Greek with two connotations. And one one that's important to us is that it's used with a spiritual connotation. It talks about spiritual mind. So what Paul's essentially saying as he writes this is he says that when you let anxiety and worry in your life, when you worry or have that anxiety, you are dealing with a spiritually divided mind. In other words, you're dealing with spiritual brokenness. Now a lot of us don't see worry that way. We see it as just kind of something that we can't quite grasp or we're really trying to trust God with this. But what Paul says is that worry or anxiety, and those words are interchangeable at this point in time, that's the result of a spiritually broken or a spiritually divided mind. That's how serious Paul wants you to take this because he's telling us that we are called to something so different than that And that we're not taking the nature of what worry and anxiety does in our hearts and our minds. We're not taking it serious enough. Because most of us just think, oh, it's something I've got to deal with. But Paul says, no, you are spiritually broken. Now, if you're really honest with yourself and you think about how anxiety or worry affects you, you'll recognize how true Paul's words are. Because when you worry, right, when you're you're worried about how are we going to get through this or how is life going to unfold or what if this never happens or what if this one thing does happen and that begins to just eat away at our bandwidth, right, eats away at our heart. We begin to to let it sink in and we begin to chase out those narratives. We begin to chase out the what ifs to their end. We let the negativity of what could be that has not even yet been written begin to dictate our path we're truly honest about it, we realize that it is spiritual brokenness. And here's why it's spiritual brokenness. And this is what I want you to hear, is that, first of all, worry and anxiety is disobedience. Now, you may want to argue with me about this and be like, hey, look, it's not really disobedience. I mean, not trying to, but the reality is, is that if the Bible tells you not to do something and you do it, there's no real way to sugarcoat the fact that You are being disobedient. And it's not just that Paul says it here. You remember what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6? Do not worry about tomorrow. What you will eat or drink. Does tomorrow not have enough troubles of its own? Right? Remember those words? Well, Paul echoes those things here. Do not be anxious about anything. So if you are worrying or you are anxious, you are literally disobeying God's word, the words of Paul, the words of Christ, God's full word, it's disobedience. Now it's harsh, right? It sounds harsh because it's like, okay, I get it. But here's the reality, disobedience is sin. It is, it is sin. And it is the same as other sin. It's not something small. It is giant and it separates us from God. And you wonder why you don't have peace in your life because you have active disobedience unfolding. And as long as you are actively disobedient, God will not give you peace. So if you're looking for peace in your relationships and peace in your home, peace in your family, peace in your heart, and you're living with a worrying or divided mind, you will never have the peace of God because God will not give peace where we are living in active and disobedient sin. That's how serious worry and anxiety truly is. No, you didn't murder anybody. No, you're not selling crack to four-year-olds or whatever, right? Like you're not doing these horrible things. But any disobedience at all, by the way, if you're doing that, that is really bad, right? But any disobedience at all is sin. It's sin. So understand the, the, the kind of the significant nature of it. The, the other reality is that the worry and disobedience, the worry and anxiety is disobedience is also that worry and anxiety is a sign of unbelief. And I use that word even though it may not be a true word. Uh, Maybe it's disbelief, but I I choose to say unbelief because it's really the picture in us that says, God, I don't trust you. That's what worry and anxiety actually is. It's a a declaration that I do not believe and or trust the promises of God. It's disbelief. Why is that? Because God's very clear in Scripture that he promises to, never, number one, never leave us nor forsake us, and number two, to give us everything that we possibly need. Jesus himself says that. He says that the lilies of the field, do they not, they're not clothed in splendor? Right? Do the birds of the air not have everything that they need to eat? Do I not promise to take care of every single one of your needs? Do I not hold all things together? Do I not promise to never leave you nor forsake you? Like These are the great promises of God. And when we worry and we live in anxiety, we are basically saying, God, I don't believe you. I don't believe you're big enough to actually reconcile and redeem brokenness. And I don't believe you're big enough to get me out of whatever this situation is, and I am afraid. Now, none of us, I think I can clearly say that, would admit that out loud because we don't let our minds put worry in that category. We always just kind of try and brush it off and ask the Lord to take it away. But the truth is, is that when we entertain worry, when we entertain anxiety, we are practicing the reality of saying, God, I do not believe that you are big enough. And so I am afraid of what comes next. If you're looking for peace in your life, you will never find it by saying, God, I don't trust you. If you're looking for peace in your marriage or peace at work or peace in your financial world or even just peace in your restless heart, you will never find it by saying, God, I don't believe you're big enough to reconcile this, redeem it, care for me, protect me, bring me out of this. God wants us to cast what? All of our cares and worries upon him. Cast all of those things upon me. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, right? I Will give you rest. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Like the entire call of the Christ follower is death to self and to lay all of us upon Christ. So when Paul says in this first command, do not be anxious about anything, he's not just saying, like, hey, don't worry about stuff. He's saying worry and anxiety is actually a symptom of a broken spiritual mind in which you are living in disobedience and declaring to God that I don't believe you. That's how serious it is. And if we work to rid ourselves of that disobedience and that unbelief, we're going to find something incredibly significant. But listen to what Paul says. He also says, listen, there's something else here I want you to hear, right? He says, don't be anxious about anything. And then he has this but. And this is where this sort of great exchange, and Paul does this all the time. He basically says, here's the thing that's broken, and here's what you need to do to exchange that thing for something that's whole. And that's where the but comes in. He says, do not be anxious about anything but in everything, right? In everything, by prayer and petition and with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. So here's the great exchange. Don't be anxious or worry about anything, anything. There's nothing that is off limits there. Anything in your life should not be driven by a spiritually broken, divided mind that brings about worry and anxiety. But however, in everything, in other words, in every one of those anythings, right, I want you to make a great exchange. And here's the great exchange. Instead of worry and anxiety, I want you to do do two things. I want you to present your requests to God with Thanksgiving. Think about this idea of, of presenting them to God. Essentially, it is simply just saying, "I want you to present them to God with prayer and with thanksgiving." All things. all things. It's the great exchange, right? Like so how do we begin to get rid of worry and anxiety in our life? Do I just say, "God, I trust you?" Paul says, "No, no, no, it's not even that easy. What you do is you begin to call upon the one who controls all things. He says, instead of worry and anxiety, exchange that by seeking the Lord and by praying and by coming to God with thanksgiving. But in everything, through prayer and petition. Now, prayer, right, we've talked a lot. In fact, just a few weeks ago, we talked about prayer. And I told you about that 19th century Norwegian theologian, O'Hausby, who defines prayer as this, right? Prayer is the, the breath of our soul, he says. It's the organ by which we receive Christ into our parched and withered hearts. So prayer is this intimate place. Paul's not saying just go give your stuff to God. He's saying have this intimate place where you exchange the brokenness of worry for the intimacy of God. See, prayer is not just where we go and cast our things upon God. Prayer is where we go and find God's heartbeat. The why God's not worried about the things that worry us. Paul invites us into this intimate relationship by which we receive Christ into our parched and withered hearts. If anything describes a life of worry and anxiety, it's parched and withered. Where am I going to get my next drink? I don't know that I can make it any farther. I don't know that I have another step in me. I can't live in this dry desert any longer. My heart, I have no life in it. I just feel afraid, like I don't know where to turn next. I kind of know that it will be okay, but Lord, I'm definitely not living any kind of an abundant life here. And I'm afraid. And if you're like me, you walk those narratives out. So what if this happens, or what if this leads to this, or what if I can't provide for my family, or what if, what if, what if, what if? And Paul says the great exchange is to take that pile of stuff, disobedience and unbelief, and exchange it for intimacy with God. Because it's not about what God gives us in return, it's about what God shows us in the middle. And when we have this moment of prayer with God, what he does is he exchanges that dry and withered, parched heart, right, for the breath of the soul. So he says that in everything, through prayer and through petition. Petition is a Greek word that says diasis, which essentially that word just means you will seek and you will look. So you go before the Lord in this prayer, which is this intimacy, this, this organ by which we receive the breath of God into our parts to with our hearts as we seek him which means we go before the Lord and we say, God, I want to know you. I want to seek you, right? Jesus says it himself. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these other things will be added unto you. But seek first the kingdom of God. That's what Paul's saying. God will take care of these things, but you have got to seek the Lord in intimacy. God is not interested in taking away all of your worry. He's not interested in taking away your anxiety. God is interested in showing you himself. And the presence of God pushes out all of those lies. So the great exchange is right as this is that through prayer and petition, and he has a little third qualifier there, right? Which is with thanksgiving. Present your requests to God. So we go before the Lord in this place of intimacy with prayer and petition and with thanksgiving. And I find this to be amazing because I come to God in those moments of even intimacy, with fear and worry. I bring those to the table. I usually don't bring gratitude. God, I'm grateful I'm walking through this. I know you'll never leave me. I believe that even in the dry desert that you are still God. Like I'm grateful that I I'm, I'm, I'm st- have these things or that I'm struggling with this because I know in these struggles. like Gratitude is this place that just says, God, I know who you are. And even in the deep part of my suffering, I believe you're still always working. I believe that every broken relationship is an opportunity for you to demonstrate gospel reconciliation and forgiveness. God, I believe even in my deepest and darkest moments, you will pull me out of the miry pit. As Psalm 40 says, he says, come before the Lord with gratitude. I come before the Lord in that great exchange with grumbling. God, why? Why am I walking through this? Why am I dealing with this? Why won't you take this away? Why is this continuing to happen? Like, God, why me? Over and over and over again. Part of this great exchange is taking this mindset that says, every breath that I even draw during the day is a gift from the Lord, and I want to find a place to live in gratitude. Do you realize that you are in the top half of 1% of the population of the world as you sit here this morning? That the reality that you get to decide if you want to wake up and go to worship is a gift that the majority of the waking world will never, ever, ever have. That if you make over $31,000 a year, you are in the top 1% of income earners in the world. We live in a woe is me category of life, and not a man, blessed is me. And that's kind of what Paul is saying to the Philippians. Life is hard for them. You think it's hard for you, it's hard for them. They've got no community really outside of the small group of Philippian believers. There's no second generation Christians there. There's no grandparents or parents to lean upon that were believers before you that walked through this and said, it's going to be okay. They're at the murderous threats of the Roman Empire all the time. There is a famine going on. They are isolated and they are alone. And their leader, Paul, who they trust and believe and follow to lead them, is in jail in Rome, 600 miles away. And Paul says, with gratitude, go before the Lord. How do you muster up gratitude in Philippi? Well, you find the things that matter, right? And everything else is peripheral and it's, it's on the outskirts. And he says, so we make this great exchange, right, for my broken, spiritual, disobedient, unbelieving mind, for this intimacy with God, with prayer and seeking. I'm going to seek him, but I'm going to do it not with the demanding results, but with a gratitude of heart. I'm not coming before God saying, God, fix this. I'm coming before God saying, I'm grateful that I have this. Show me who you are. And the promise is what's amazing to me. Listen to what the promise is if we do these things. Right? Verse 7. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding... Well, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. This is the great promise that Paul says happens. That if we take our broken, spiritually divided, worrying, right, unbelieving, disobedient minds, and we make this exchange to seek the Lord in intimacy with prayer and gratitude and thanksgiving, something unbelievable begins to happen. We begin to have the peace of God which transcends understanding. Now think about what Paul's saying there. He's basically saying God's peace doesn't make any sense. Because it doesn't take your problems away per se. Because you'd have peace if you prayed and God said, oh yeah, I know you're struggling. Uh, that's really hard. You guys don't have any food. You don't have any money. Like here's a lottery ticket. Here's 50 grand. Everything's going to be fine. Then it would be like, I'm at peace. And everyone would be like, that makes total sense. But God gives their heart a peace and the famine doesn't go away. And the Romans aren't taken out of power. And they're still a threat for their life. But he says, God gives something that defies all conventional wisdom, which is this sort of thing that washes over us that says, I should be freaking out, but I trust and believe the promises of God. It's gonna be okay. You know, conventional wisdom says... That when things don't make sense, we panic. Unconventional wisdom says when they don't make sense, I still believe they'll be okay because I believe in something bigger and higher and more powerful. I believe in a God who is real. If you've ever been to a funeral of a believer, of, a, of someone who really loved the Lord, you recognize this sort of peace that Paul's talking about. This thing that's like, I should be devastated, and I am for my earthly loss, but I rejoice because they're with their maker. Like, they wouldn't come back if they could. Like they are in the arms of the God that made them. There is no more pain and no more suffering and no more tears. And for the life of a believer, that transcends worldly understanding. That's the peace that Paul's talking about. That part of us that says, yeah, I should sh- be freaking out, but I'm not. Because I believe God will give me tomorrow what I need for tomorrow. God will provide for me today what I need for today. Even in the Lord's Prayer, do you remember what Jesus prays? Teach them to pray, right? Saying, Lord, give me today my daily bread. Meaning, give me today what I need for today. Just for today. The manna for today. Tomorrow, give me for tomorrow. That's a piece that transcends understanding. I don't know what work's going to bring. I don't know where I'm going to be in a year. I don't know what it's going to be like to be a new dad or a new mom. I should be freaking out. We don't have near enough money saved or whatever it is. Or I, I, I don't know. But that's okay. Because God has rested my heart in him. And I'm not going to live in disobedience at panics. And I'm going to say, God, not only do I trust you, but I believe you. And this is the promise that Paul says God gives. He doesn't promise to make those things go away. He doesn't promise to take the source of your worry and anxiety and squash it and say, thank you for coming to me. I know you're worried about work. When you go back in on Monday, there's going to be a new four-year contract on your desk, so relax. He doesn't say it at all. He just says, I've got you. Do you believe that? And We say, yeah, I do. I believe that you will never fail me, and you haven't yet, so why would I believe you would now? But the most amazing part of all this that I find remarkable is the last tagline on the end of that. He says that God will give us this peace which transcends all understanding, and what will it do? It will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Meaning, meaning simply this, that the greatest gift that God will give us is the guarding of our hearts and minds from the additional lies of the enemy. The enemy wants to come back in and whisper that garbage to your soul the moment you get off your knees and you're done praying. The moment, right, the next Monday when you find peace that weekend and you've given everything to the Lord, that next Monday when everything hits the fan again, God's promise is that peace that transcends all understanding. I'm going to use that to guard your heart. And you get to say, no, Satan, not today. Not even close to today. I'm not going to believe your lies anymore. God has given me a peace and that peace will guard my heart, which means I believe and I trust in the promises of God and he will protect my heart. He doesn't look at the Philippians and say, hey man, when you do all this, there's going to be no more worries. He's saying God's going to guard your heart from future ones. It's not super comforting, honestly, because we want the other end of this deal. We want God just to fix it. That's what we want. If I was a Philippian, I would want God to basically eradicate the Roman issues, drive a semi-truck full of grain in, drop it all off, make everything go away, and show the world how great he is. That's what I would want. But God doesn't work in those ways. God calls us to depend on him. To trust him, to know him intimately, and then he says, "Even when tomorrow brings about a whole truckload of garbage i 'm going to protect your heart i 'm going to guard it, and i 'm going to guard it in Christ, meaning that the seal that I have given you and the promise that I am a God who I, that I am, who I say I am, is that i 'm going to give you my son. This is the great exchange that God made for our sin, that he exchanged his son Jesus as the evidence and seal of his great love for us. You don't believe me? I've given my son for you. It's a mind blower. This weekend, what we were working through this entire time was how to believe those promises and how to make that great exchange. My challenge for you and for myself today as we walk out of here is, how do I begin to make that exchange in my own heart? Like, I need to go before the Lord in prayer. I need to find out and identify what these worries and anxieties are. I need to call them by name. I need to to call them out to the Lord. I need to walk away from them. I need to petition God. I need to declare that they are unbelief and they are lies and I've been living in them and that is sinful. And that's okay, but it's not okay to continue to do. It's okay that it's happened, but it's not okay to continue to allow it to happen. And so, Lord, I will make this great exchange by seeking you, by asking you to water my parched and withered heart with the breath of your soul. I will petition you and I will do it with gratitude. And I want the peace that transcends understanding. I'm not asking you to take all these things away. I'm just asking you to give me peace in the middle of them to trust you and believe you. And guard my heart in Christ. Marathon and I often—I talk about this all the time. This is the one thing that just penetrates the soul of our family and even our own marriage: is the fact that we let this worry and anxiety creep in and dictate our path. We all need to make a declaration where we say, "No more." You don't get to do it, Satan. Right? So, guard, God guard my heart and my mind. I'm going to breathe deep, and I'm going to make the great exchange for worry and anxiety to a peace that transcends all understanding. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for just the opportunity to gather this morning for a short word, but a really powerful and cool word from Scripture. And I think we all, I think it's super fair to say we all deal with this. It's just very real. Um, It's hard, but it's real. Worry is real. Sometimes it's the small things that get us, and sometimes it's giant. Sometimes it's a career move or you know, whatever it is, and sometimes it's just the small things, like, God, I I just, I worry what happens next, or I worry about my children, or my parents, or I, I worry about how they're going to be, or what's going to happen, or I just, I can't seem to fully let go and trust you, and I know that by doing that, I'm declaring, sadly so, that I don't truly believe you, and I don't want that, I want to believe you in everything, And so, Lord, exchange our disobedience and our unbelief for obedience and trust. Let us come before you where you water the soul of our hearts, Lord, where you just give us life. And, Lord, where you make this great exchange for us. That instead of worry and anxiety, we don't get answers to all our problems. Actually, I don't really want answers to my problems. I just I just want your peace to sit on my soul. Because if I get answers to these problems, I'm going to have more problems tomorrow. I'm just going to exchange problem for problem. They're never going away. Life is hard. So there are always going to be problems. There's always going to be fears. There's always going to be those things. So I just want to let them be what they are. But in the middle of them, whatever you rise up, whatever rises up in my life today, I want you to rise up with it. Whatever new thing comes up on Monday, I want your peace to come up with it. Whatever new question kind of pokes at my soul, I, I want your peace to rise with it. And when the world says, tribute, you should be worried. I want to just say I'm not. My God is big. What are you going to do? I want to be able to say, I, I don't know, but I trust that God will show me when he shows me. How are you going to do this? I, I don't fully have all those answers, and I'm okay with that. I just want to believe and trust that God will. And I'll work to whatever end it is, but I'm not going to let fear dictate my path. It doesn't get to tell me what steps to take. Or actually what steps not to take. So God, I'll let your peace transcend all of our understanding. So I don't pray for answers to all of our problems. I pray that you will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. For that is enough. Lord, as we close our time in worship, I pray that you would press these things on our souls that you would make them real and true, and that, Lord, you would anchor them deep in us. As we close our time in worship, release our disbelief or our, our disobedience, if you will, and our unbelief to you. We just let it go. So, Lord, as we sing to you, let those things fall by our side and exchange those for a peace that transcends all understanding. Let's close our time in worship. that in the midst of all of those things, Jesus, he will just hold us. That's the great promise, right? That God will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So make that great exchange. Don't allow worry and anxiety to run your life anymore. Declare what they actually are. They're disobedience and unbelief, and they have no place in your life. Make that great exchange. And don't petition God for answers. Petition God for his transcendent peace guard your heart. God's game is long. He's got this great journey in store for you. It's not about what happens on Wednesday or Monday or Thursday. It's about who you are becoming in Him. Trust that process and trust the God who navigates it and breathe deep.